Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Hey everybody, welcome to the Single Tracks Podcast. My name is Jeff, and today my guest is Ned Overend. Ned is a mountain bike hall of famer and highly accomplished racer, winning the first ever UCI mountain bike world championship in 1990, the Xterra world championship in 1998 and 99, and also the UCI masters world cycle cross championship in 2012. Today, he's the specialized cross-country mountain bike team captain and lives in Durango, Colorado. Thanks for joining us, Ned. Yeah. Great to be here. So I read that growing up, you lived in several countries all around the world. How'd you end up settling in tiny, out-of-the-way Durango? Well, my dad worked for the State Department. So we uh, I was born in Taiwan and in between these trips to different countries, we would uh, live in Bethesda, Maryland, because it was close okay. to Washington, D.C., the headquarters for the State Department. And we'd be in Maryland for a couple of years and then we'd go for three or four years overseas. And we lived in Tehran, which was pretty interesting. Mm. And we also yeah. lived in Ethiopia for three and a half years. Wow. And also, something that we would do is, you know, that you get a couple months R&R, they call it, when you work with the government overseas. Mm-hmm. And during these couple of months, my parents would take the whole family, and there were six of us, six kids, and they would travel to some exotic places. We went to the Seychelles Islands. Uh, we did a lot of trips through Europe mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Pretty amazing that mm-hmm. my parents would drag six, six kids. <laughs> so we wow. ended up doing yeah. a lot of traveling. When my dad retired, we moved to the Bay Area. And I went okay. to College of Marin, and then I went to San Diego State. And I had done some running. I was mainly a, a runner mm-hmm. and in, in college and in junior college and high school and stuff. And a pretty well-accomplished runner, mainly cross-country. And loved running in Marin in particular, right? I mean, they've got some amazing trails mm-hmm. for the redwoods and stuff in Marin. Trails that are mostly illegal to mountain bikes. But, I mean, but, but, uh, <laughs> right. Then I went to San Diego State. And when I was in a sporting goods store in San Diego State, I saw a flyer for the International Alpine School. And they were having an hmm. ice climbing class, which was in Uray, Colorado. And... San Diego was kind of too big for me. I knew I wanted to get more into the mountains. And uh, mm-hmm. my wife, Pam, she was my girlfriend at the time. You know, I said, uh, let's let's move to Colorado. So we did a, a lap around Colorado. <laughs> and uh, we went to Boulder, Gunnison, uh, Colorado Springs, and Durango. And decided, hey, let's move to Durango. Mm-hmm. They had a hospital. She was a... Um, she was a nurse at the time. I was also a, a car and motorcycle mechanic, so I got a job as, as a car mechanic okay. there. Not really intending to be a professional athlete at that time, but uh, 
yeah, we ended up in Granville and, and we liked it. We liked the fact that the winters weren't too harsh because the 6,500 feet. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's not as high as, as Vail. It doesn't get as much snow as, as some of those, you know, higher mm-hmm. ski towns. Plus, it was pretty close to the desert. So we figured we'd want to get a break from winter because neither of us had lived in a, in a winter environment before, you know, in California. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, so we yeah. chose Durango and it took a little while for it to grow on us, but it's, uh, <laughs> we're glad we did. Yeah, that's, that's fascinating. Well, yeah, I'm curious too, when you were growing up, I mean, moving kind of all over the world, did you, did you have a bike? Like, did you grow up with bikes at all? Or, or was that like too much of a luxury back then? Um, no, I didn't. I had a fat tire, single speed in Ethiopia. And I actually had, I have okay. a picture of me on a three wheel trike in Tehran, <laughs> but I don't really remember riding it that much. I was pretty young at the time, but I, I did mm. ride this fat bike, this fat tire, uh, single speed in Ethiopia, but mainly just, you know, we had a long driveway and it was dirt and that, that bike had a flat tire, sat with a flat tire for a long time. But I, I had a horse in Ethiopia. We actually had, uh, oh, wow. our family had three horses. So I was actually spending, you know, if I wanted to go out and explore something, I could, I could take a horse and go to it. We, we lived out in the country uh, outside of Addis Ababa, so it was, it was pretty remote. Wow. Yeah, that's fascinating. Also, it sounds like, so you went to school in Marin. I mean, was that around the time that mountain biking was getting started? Were you aware of it or like what was happening there at the time? I was not aware of mountain biking at all in high school. I graduated in 73. So before the mountain bike time, but also uh, I had a buddy of mine Lars Moller, who was from Sweden, and he bought a Crescent bicycle, and the bicycle was too small for him, so I bought it from him. He had gone mm-hmm. back to Sweden and bought it, had mm-hmm. camping equipment and, and tubular tires on it, even. Mm-hmm. And so it was, a, it was a nice bike, and it was literally my first, not my first bike, but my first bike since riding like a paperboy bike as a kid. <laughs> Yeah. And and we were on the cross country team, so I was, you know, I I was into training and, and you know, was pretty athletic and started riding that bike around Marin and I rode it on the, the fire roads hmm. in Marin. Another wow. bike that cool. flat tires pretty often, but <laughs> I figured out how to I had to uh do tubular repair. So I got pretty good at that yeah. because definitely ended up with a lot of punctures before I <laughs> And I, I raced that bike when I got into bike racing. I had that bike for a long time. When I moved to Durango, I had it and ended up racing the road race to Silverton, which is one of the events that really got me into bike racing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so I'm curious about uh, mountain biking specifically. Like, when did you hear about that term and think about, you know, riding off road and, and maybe even racing off road? Was that, what was kind of your introduction to the sport? So in 1983, I moved to Durango in 1980 and was working as a automotive mechanic. Mm-hmm. And in 1983, I, I had been running and like all runners, I, I got injured. So I, so I started road biking 
because there was mm -hmm. a road race in Durango, you know, the Durango to Silverton road race, 50 miles, 11,000 foot pass, and wow. super mountainous road race. But, you know, because this race was promoted, it was, uh, you know, it caught my eye and I, I was a good climber on the, on the, uh, in running. So mm -hmm. I took to road racing immediately, especially these mountainous Colorado road races. Mm -hmm. And I, I was doing well, you know, I went from a cat four to a, a cat one the first year. And in 1983, I actually did the Coors Classic on the Raleigh team mm -hmm. um, with some famous riders. It was Thurlow Rogers, uh, Andy Hampston, who went on to win the, the Giro. Mm -hmm. And so I decided, okay, I'm going to quit working as a mechanic, start working at the bike shop, the Schwinn dealer, and... Uh, focus on trying to become a road racer or potentially a triathlete. I was also doing some triathlons, mm. right? Because I was running and stuff, mm -hmm. so I was doing some swimming. Yeah. And about that time, mountain bikes started showing up on the on the floor, the showroom floor. And I worked at a Schwinn dealer, and I think okay. the first one yeah. might have been a High Sierra or something called a King Sting. Really early mm. mountain bikes, and I thought. This is fun because I also, something I hadn't mentioned, but I had a motocross background when I was in high school. I did okay. some motocross racing and I was a motorcycle mechanic. I actually was trained as a, as a mechanic. But mm. so I kind of knew how to, you know, put the bike together and, and kind of modify it. Because in the early days, there was a lot of, uh, a lot of wrenching on your own bikes to keep it running. They, they were <laughs> yeah. But I thought this is great, and then I noticed that there were some mountain bike races starting to crop up. Right, I was I was always reading about the racing because I was looking at being a road racer, and I mm -hmm. went out to California and did the Pacific Sun Tour series on my stock Schwinn High Sierra, and I ended up winning mm -hmm. a couple of the races, and I won that series overall. And I'm going to say that was 1983. Wow. And it was against guys like Joe mm -hmm. Murray, George Theobald, Roy Rivers, uh, Steve Cook. I don't know if these names, you know, ring a bell with anybody, but the early days. And yeah, yeah. Fisher sponsored a team. Ross sponsored a team. Um, Tom Ritchie sponsored a team. Specialized sponsored a team. Mm -hmm. Schwinn did not have a team yet. So I called Schwinn with these results that I had. Uh, talked to Fred Tiemann and he said, we were thinking mm -hmm. about starting a team, so let's do it. Because I, you know, I had some great results right away. And, uh, you know, they started yeah. paying my way to a few races and a couple hundred bucks start money and some bonus. And and that's how it started. Mm -hmm. So I started racing for Schwinn in, in 1984. But the, the combination of having oh, wow. some, some motocross wow. skills, you know, along with being a mechanic and hill climbing, on the road bike as well, you mm -hmm. know, having trained on the road bike, it was, it was kind of a great combination for jumping right into mountain bike racing. Yeah. Yeah. That's so cool. So you mentioned that you had a running background and that you were good at, at climbing, you know, running and on road bikes. And I noticed that you've won a number of bicycle hill climb races, which that sounds absolutely brutal, especially to mountain bikers. Right. Cause you know, we all, most of us ride uphill just so we can go down and have some fun. So I'm curious, how do you train for a hill climb race? Like, 
you know, just going straight up and not worrying about the downs. Is it any different from training for like a normal race? Um, well, I think you, you need, it's important to try and mimic the course you're going to be riding on. So okay. it's, uh, and, and that's tough for a lot of people that, I mean, it's easy living in Durango, right? You have some <laughs> long climbs yeah. in Durango. We're fortunate. Yeah. And, uh, I had actually realized I was good at running uphill when I was running hmm. cross country in Marin. You know, mm -hmm. A lot, a lot of the, uh, I was pretty good on the cross country team, but in Marin, you know, a lot of the cross country courses that we were, we were racing in college where, you know, they tend to be rolling. They don't tend to be hill climbs. And, mm -hmm. and we had a, a, a multi-school event in Yosemite Valley. And oh, one wow. of, there was a 10 mile run one morning and we had like five schools and it was to the top of Glacier Point from Yosemite Valley. And hmm. I had been getting yeah, maybe top 10 in some of these, the 5K races, which required more leg speed. But uh, mm -hmm. I found that I ran up Glacier Point and, and I won. And uh, <laughs> it wasn't that hard. It seemed less hard than running <laughs> in, the, in the valley, in the flats at a higher speed. So that, yeah. that you know, was the kind of the, one of the first times I realized that, uh, you know, the power to weight climbing thing seems to suit me. And I, I went on to mm -hmm. uh, win several mountain runs. And in Colorado, I was second in the Pikes Peak Marathon twice. Before again, getting injured and wow. switching the bikes. But, but it's important, you know, so I was doing intervals on climbs as a runner before I ever mm -hmm. started uh, mountain or bicycle hill climbs. And one way I mm -hmm. like to train on them is that in a race, you'll find that, you know, you'll be, you'll be on a climb and people will be surging or the steepness will change and it'll be undulating, but still climbing all the time. Mm -hmm. And what I would do yeah. is find a long climb, do intervals within that climb, several of them, you know, maybe four, hmm. let's say two minute intervals. And at the end of those two minutes, I would be pretty well maxed out. And I would give myself a mm -hmm. minute recovery, but at the same time, okay. I would still be going uphill, right? So I was forcing my body hmm. to recover yeah while it was still under the stress of climbing. And I, I think that uh, kind of yeah. interval uh, really helped me because it, you know, it, it really mimics a race situation, you know, where somebody may surge or you have a steep part of the climb, so you have to go harder, but then you need to continue at a pretty good pace and try and recover while you're actually climbing. So, I mean, that's, that's just one yeah. technique I had. I, I am a perceived effort climber. So I don't use a wattmeter and I don't use a heart rate monitor. Um, so I just, I, I train based on how I feel. So, uh, so it's, it's a little hard to okay. extrapolate that into, this is how people should train. If you know what I mean? I mean, I'm an advocate yeah. of heart rate monitors and, and wattmeters for sure. I think they're, they're really invaluable training tools, but perceived effort, uh, climbing or, training has worked for me. Yeah. Interesting. Well, yeah, I mean, I know for a lot of people, um, I mean, for one, most people don't enjoy climbing. Um, and then there's also sort of a lot of people 
kind of put themselves into a category of like, I'm good at climbing or I'm not good at climbing. And it's interesting, you know, your experience talking about that race in Yosemite where, I mean, it almost sounds like you kind of surprised yourself at like how good you were at it. Do you think, do you think genetics plays a role? Like, is that some people are just naturally going to be better at it and, and it's going to be easier for them? Or is that something that, you know, someone who would say, ah, oh, I'm a terrible climber, like, can they become a really great climber? I think uh, there's a lot of things that play into it. Genetics, I'm not sure how they necessarily affect you, but I'm absolutely sure that, you know, athletic ability and genetics, you know, are connected. Now, yeah. myself, um, I, don't, I don't have other family members that have, have shown, you know, talent. My dad actually passed from a heart attack when he was 56 years old, oh, his wow. third heart attack at that time. Wow. So, but of course, that's, that's different. I mean, he worked his whole life. He wasn't, he wasn't into training. He didn't have a really unhealthy mm -hmm. lifestyle. I mean, he didn't smoke or, or drink, yeah. but he was high stress. And uh, hmm. I think at the time when he died, you know, they, they weren't doing stents and they didn't have statins, you know, so mm -hmm. his life could have been prolonged for a long time, I think, if, you know, with more yeah. modern medicine. But uh, the, so genetics, I'm sure it plays a part. I'm, you know, I'm not that qualified to speak exactly how. Um, but one thing that definitely plays a part is mentally you do have to believe you know that you can achieve it and you really yeah. have to embrace the the hard training and ways that i've done mm -hmm. that are uh I, I think my attitude towards hard intervals and pain is i've actually grown to to love that aspect of training and i think mm -hmm. what i think is that while I'm training and while I'm really pushing hard and it's painful, to me, it's a positive thing because I, I say to myself, okay, this is what's really going to make me better. This is what's going to make a difference. This is what's going to develop mm -hmm. my cardiovascular system. Yeah. And this is going to pay off. Right. So, and also the, mm -hmm. uh, I like the fatigue, the satisfaction of having a hard workout afterwards, you know, when you're really tired and you feel like you've, you've accomplished something physically, you know, because you yeah. push yourself and, and, uh, you know, and then with proper rest, you're going to be more fit. So I've, I've got a good attitude towards, towards pain and hard training. And also hmm. I, as somewhere along the line, and I'm not quite sure where exactly I developed it. I mean, I had results, but I started thinking of, of myself as a guy who is going to win, right? That is yeah. what I'm going to, uh, that is going to be my goal for the races, you know, not to yeah. do well, not to get on the podium, but to win. And, mm. you know, I've had some success with it and success obviously, you know, breeds that kind of motivation. Yeah. So, of winning and but yeah. but yeah and i had i had uh success in running races mountain running races and and had success early on in bicycle races and then just 
continue to think of myself as, okay, my goal is to win. And you also have to look at when you're, when yeah. you don't win, how you react to that, right? Because obviously you're not going to win all the time. And I've races when I'm, when I've been bad. And I think what I do is I, you have to examine what went wrong in that race, you know, and maybe nothing went wrong, but uh, you know, you just weren't properly prepared for it, you know, yeah. and adjust your, your training yeah. or your pre-race prep to, uh, to solve whatever, whatever, whatever problem you had. And I'm, I've been really good at mm -hmm. saying, okay, I didn't perform that well, but I can still improve on that. You know, and maybe I can, maybe I can't. As I get older, maybe I'm not going to improve on it, but I go ahead and tell myself I can't improve on it. You know, so I'm in essentially fooling myself. You don't want to fool yourself too much, but, uh, you know, trying to have a short memory for my failures so I'm motivated to uh, try again to improve my performance. Instead of saying, oh, you know, I wasn't that good last time. I guess I'm just not going to be able to perform at that level. Instead, I forget about that and I'm like, okay, fresh slate. We're going to try again. <laughs> if you know what I mean. I'm trying to... <laughs> Some of the attitudes that I think have led to my success over the years and longevity. So not just genetics, but mental and obviously taking care of yourself and, and the proper training adapted to the individual. Yeah. It sounds like the mental game is a huge part of it. And it also, I mean, did you figure a lot of this stuff out on your own or did you have a coach that was able to kind of help you figure this out or, or other athletes maybe even that were sort of uh, mentors for you? I, I got the information uh, from all over the place. I didn't have a coach who specifically coached me and gave me a, a training program. But uh, I've known many coaches and I've always tried to learn as much as I can from them. Um, mm. You know, I've read Eddie Borsowitz's book. I mean, there, there's so many coaching books. I always, I read the books and I try and glean information from them that pertains to me. Like Joe Friel, Fast After 50. Joe Friel, I think, has mm -hmm. got some great coaching information. And he presents it in a, in a way that's very easy to understand. Um, so I've adapted people's coaching techniques to myself. Plus also have learned a lot from successful athletes that, that I've been around um, over the years. Guys like Christoph Sauser and Todd Wells. And so just kind of gleaned information from all different sources to try and apply to my situation. Yeah. Yeah. Well, your book, Mountain Bike Like a Champion, I know is one that I've personally read. I think I was actually looking it up uh, the other day and Amazon told me that I bought it in 2004. So that was what, almost 20 years ago uh, that I bought that book. But yeah, I mean, still such a relevant text and, you know, inspiring like the next generation of mountain bike athletes. And then obviously you as a coach now, um, being able to, to share all that information. Do you think mountain biking is different now? Like, because we have those resources than kind of when you were starting out? Yeah, I think there, there's definitely more information, not just for mountain biking, but I think for all athletic sports, right? I, I, there's mm. been, uh, 
a lot more testing, you know, as far as nutrition, especially and different methods of training, different methods of recovery. So, and, and especially the, the equipment changes of mountain biking have, uh, have, have been pretty drastic, of course. So yeah, different information and a lot of information to learn from. And it's important, I think, to, you know, look at as many sources of information as you can to try and so looking at your resume, I mean, I'm just fascinated by the number of sports and, and disciplines, even within mountain biking or within cycling that you've been able to have, you know, tons of success in. And the one of the more recent ones was 2015. You became the U.S. National Fat Bike Champion. So how did you get into fat biking? Like what made you want to give that a try? in 2015 and and is it all that different from cross-country racing or is it is it kind of just the same thing but on snow it's it's got some similarities to cross-country racing but but some things of course are very different and what got me into fat biking i had always always kind of looked at it and the fat bike Mm -hmm. races i had looked at was the fat bike berkey which is really the the super bowl of fat biking and uh it Mm -hmm. it's in uh, Wisconsin, and it uh, it's on the Berkey Biner ski course. And I've done the Berkey Biner a couple of times. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a 60K cross-country ski race. So I was familiar kind of with the terrain and with that race. And then I noticed that they were racing fat bikes on, and it's a big event. I mean, they, at that time, they would have yeah. six or 700 people on the start mm-hmm. line. Now now it's well over 1,000. So uh it, it's a big event. So that kind of interested me. Plus, you know, the fact that it was on the Berkey course, but I didn't actually pull the trigger because mm. I, we didn't make a fat bike at Specialized. And the, one of the things that has kept me interested in cycling in longevity is the fact that I work for Specialized. And I mean, I like riding all the different disciplines, roads, cyclocross, um, mm-hmm. you know, obviously mountain bike, but also, you know, fat bike as well. And they said, we're thinking about building a fat bike. You know, uh, you live in Colorado. Can you go to some events and, mm-hmm. and help us out with this, you know, and, and kind of figure out what the geometry needs to be and, you know, what size, what size wheel is ideal mm-hmm. and di- different things like that. So, I mean, I, I really embrace that. So I think the first fat bike race I did was in Steamboat and, uh, it was pretty cool. They actually had fat bikes and Nordic skiers on the course at the same time, which is pretty crazy. And because Nordic skiers, if, you, if you've been around, I mean, they have long, really long ski poles, Nordic skiers, and they're swinging them way out there. And, and I remember trying to have to time some passing with these Nordic skiers. They didn't want to give an inch. They didn't want bikes passing. It's very unusual to have skiers and bikes on course at the same yeah because the skiers are worried you're going to mess up the snow for them too right so they probably really didn't want to be behind yeah this was in the early days you don't i've never really seen another race that does that but they you know steamboat was doing something unique but it was interesting and and fun it's exciting you'd be surprised most people who haven't ridden fat bikes at how fast fat bikes are i mean literally Mm. 40 plus miles per hour on the downhills if uh, you know, wow. you look at their Strava, and those tires glide over the snow really quickly. 
And, you know, it's, of course, it's all different snow conditions, but you can have snow conditions that are super fast. Yeah. So, um, so that, that's what got me into it was they asked me to, to, uh, to help them develop it. And of course, you know, they also want to have help marketing it. And there's no better marketing, really, I think, for a fat bike that's, that's going to be used in races, of course, except for someone who does well in races, right? So, so winning races. Mm -hmm. So I went back and did the fat bike Berkey, uh, the year after that. And I think I was still may have been on a, an aluminum frame at, at that time. We started out making an aluminum fat bike mm. before we went to carbon mm -hmm. and the fat bike Berkey, uh, they were calling themselves the national championships, although they are not a UCI thing or a, <laughs> a USA cycling sanctioned race. So, I mean, but they gave yeah. out a Jersey and, and the whole nine yards, but I, you know, there was like 800 guys on the line starting that race. And the Midwest is really mm -hmm. where fat biking has grown up and where it thrives. Not, they have some fat right. biking in the Rockies, but the Midwest is really where it's happening. So that, that was really a big deal for me to, to win the fat bike Berkey. And then the year after that, USA Cycling said, okay, we better, you know, fat biking's popular. We better have a national championships. That one was in Utah which was at a ski area. So that suited me even, even better, I think, because it was a lot of climbing, high altitude and that. And I won that fight, fat bike race as well. But the Berkey was really more satisfying because it, it had a much bigger field and the, and the guys in the Midwest are fast. But it, it's interesting when you say, how is it yeah. different? The, the terrain is, uh, you're, you're never fully connected to the ground. Right, because there's there's always mm -hmm. a little bit of slip mm -hmm. there. So, for instance, in the fat bike Berkey, there was a couple inches of fresh snow and a lot of turns, a lot of undulating terrain and turns. So, mm -hmm. literally, as you're pedaling through these turns at a pretty good speed, like 20, 25 miles an hour, you're drifting. So you have to you just have to keep the power on. If if you stop pedaling, you know you're just going to lose all momentum. So. So it was a matter of right. drifting all over the place. Now it's a controlled drift with fat biking. If, if people have ridden those, they know that you're, you're riding four or five PSI in the tire. So you've got great traction, but it's not mm. fully connected to the zone, but it's, it's controllable. You're not, you're not like, right. you know, you're not having even that many near misses, you know, if you've got your tires set up right, but tire setup is key in fat biking. So, being able to put the the mm -hmm. your power to the snow, as it were, is really important in fat biking. I think there's a little extra resistance, so it yeah. uh, it probably suits a guy who's climbing, maybe similar to climbing. But uh, you know, obviously, it's not rough mm -hmm. when you're fat biking on snow, but all your suspension is in the tires, and and that's mm -hmm. generally enough. So it's a little different in that respect, right? Technically, uh, it. What they've started doing is doing fat bike single track and, and actually have these special machines, you know, that are with a two foot wide pulley that they, they drag behind a snowmobile and they're packing single track. And they try and put single track races or single track sections in the fat bike races now, which makes them much more interesting and, and more technical. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like the, the main technical aspect of, a lot of those races is, is just the bike handling. It's learning to, like you said, control your bike, 
um, and, and cornering and all those things are a little bit different, not necessarily technical, but yeah, just kind of a different, different bike yeah, it, handling it's skill. A, it's a different kind of technique. Sure. Yeah. It, but it is bike handling skill. Yeah. yeah. Very cool. So I want to talk a little bit about Durango. Durango is promoting Spoketober next month, and that's the community's first annual uh, cycling celebration. So tell us a little bit about the local cycling community in Durango. How has it grown and changed over the years since you first arrived? Yeah, Durango has an incredible bike culture. And, you know, it actually, it had some bike culture when I first arrived there in 1980. And mm -hmm. Ed Zink was a guy who started and promoted the Iron Horse Classic. Right. And uh, I, I don't think race promoters uh, get enough credit. Right. I think a lot of times they, they, it's a tough job. They got a lot yes. of bike racers who are complaining about that, how slow the results came out or how much the entropy <laughs> was or stuff. But if you think about it, without the promoters, we don't really have a sport. You know, the early yeah. promoters of Mammoth and Big Bear uh, and Durango mountain biking was created out of the sport of racing. You know, mm -hmm. it started with the very first guys on, on repack, right? The repack right. downhill in Marin County. So, um, the promoters deserve a lot of credit. I mean, that's, that's what got me into, into cycling, you know, seeing this event mm -hmm. that they were having in Durango. So the promotion of races in Durango, brought attention to Durango as a cycling town, right? And mm -hmm. the Ed Zink, the promoter who also owns the mountain bike specialist, now Ed passed away a couple mm -hmm. years ago, but his wife, Patty, is, is the current owner. Um, Ed also had the foresight to, once mountain bike started growing there, to start a trails advocacy group called, it was called Trails 2000 at the time. Right now it's called Durango Trails. The head of that group currently is Travis mm -hmm. Brown's wife, uh, Mary Monroe Brown. So, but okay. we've been fortunate that a lot of people have joined the group. It's got a lot of political clout. So that it's interesting in Durango, mm -hmm. if somebody wants to build a housing development, the city council will come to the Durango Trails Group and say, what do you think about this? Do we need trail easements through there? <laughs> well, it's it's wow. kind of the reverse of the way it is in, wow. in other cities. So we're, we're very fortunate because, mm -hmm. and one reason that Visit Durango has started Spoketober to celebrate cycling is because cycling is very important to the economy of Durango. You know, it's a destination mountain bike spot. Mm -hmm. yeah. and, uh, it, the people who live there I think there's like over 500 kids in the Durango Devo program, which starts from everything from push bikes wow. on up to the high school team. And that's a big number. We're, we're a town of 20,000 mm -hmm. people. So there's so many aspects to it. But yep. early on, they recognized that having quality trails was important for the cycling community, for the people who wanted to move there, for the people, the quality of life for the people who live there. So we have the race promotion. You have mm -hmm. the trail advocacy. You have people who started Durango Devo, which is Sarah Tesher and Chad Cheney. And they started with the attitude 
they, they were both racers themselves, but their attitude for Durango Devo is mm -hmm. this is about having fun. If the primary goal here is for kids to love to learn to learn to love bikes, right? They have a, uh, a saying, it's uh, yeah. NFTF, which stands for never forget the feeling and never forget the feeling of the first time you rode a bike. Mm. So it's pretty cool. So that same philosophy is similar yeah. to Nike's philosophy, right? Nike High School Race, you know, they, they have a motto, right. which is there is no bench. And by that, they mean there's no bench warmers. Everybody rides, right? Everybody races. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So, so all these different groups really helped create the current culture of cycling in Durango. On top of that, Fort Lewis cycling, more national collegiate cycling championships than any other school in the country. That's not a big school. Well, yeah. All of these things have have created pros that want to come there, train because the great trails, the altitude is a, a, a good uh, height for training, and uh, they live there. And I don't know, it's the whole mix has been amazing. I mean, we have created Durango. I'm gonna, I'm going to make this statement that uh, <laughs> more talent for I think road and mountain bike especially mountain bike has come out of Durango than any other city in the country and in a lot of places in the world. I mean, it's, it's turning out that now we are competitive worldwide, you know, with kids like Chris Blevins and Riley Amos and uh, on the mountainside and roadside, the, the kids are coming out of Durango, Sepp Coos, Ben Simmons. So uh, some world-class road racers as well. Road racers that used to be mountain bike racers. <laughs> right. Well, yeah, I wanted to ask you what it was like last year seeing Christopher Blevins become the first American to win a World Cup mountain bike race since, I think, 94. What was, it, what was that like to see him up there? It was 94, and I was one of the guys who won a World Cup in 94. There, yeah. there was three of us. So Chris Blevins won uh, at Snowshoe. The, mm -hmm. the World Cup and UCI World Cup this past uh, summer, a couple months ago. And it was the first time an American had won a World Cup since 1994, which seems crazy, really, but it's been that long. And you know, we have so many bike racers in, in the U.S., mountain bike racers. But in 94, uh, John Tomac won a World Cup. I won two World Cups, one in Switzerland and one in Italy. And then I believe Tinker won the World Cup Finals in Vale. So Tinker was actually the last one to win a World Cup, but we all, we all won in that season. Yeah. But three in one year, I didn't realize that, that yeah. all three of you had won in 94. So then, then what happened after 94? It gets a little complicated. But <laughs> I, would, I would say uh, <laughs> EPO happened. That definitely had an no. effect on it. And, and no. I'm not just casting aspersions. No. I mean, there was, uh, you mm -hmm. know, whether it's G Jerome Chiodi or several other athletes that uh, went on to be discovered to test positive. You know, so I'm, I'm, I'm not just making mm -hmm. accusations about yeah. it. So it, it, and that really is the year that it started making it. 
a big difference. And it was, it was very discouraging to uh, a lot of American racers who uh, kind of stopped doing the World Cup because for several yeah. years there, they didn't have a test for EPL. But it had come, I think it kind of bled mm -hmm. over from the roadside where obviously they had a serious problem with it as well. But not to go too far down that. I, I think mm -hmm. they solved that problem for the most part with better drug testing and stuff like that. But we still didn't win any World Cups. And I, I think it's, it's partially <laughs> one of the reasons that we haven't been successful is that the teams, the sponsors haven't invested in having U.S. athletes racing a lot in Europe. It's expensive. They're not getting results because mm. they're not living and racing right. over there, right? So they, you need to make a several year investment before the riders can rise to the level to be able to mm. compete at that level on those courses. So they just weren't making that investment. I think mm -hmm. what's changed that is, uh, for one thing, Nike high school racing. You know, there is a much bigger pool yeah. of junior racers that have developed, right? The cream rises to the top. And, and I think that's one of the reasons that it's so competitive over here now because of NICA that we now have globally competitive mountain bike racers, you know, like Christopher Blevins, Riley Amos. And, and uh, you know, if you look at Kate Courtney, she, she was a, a NICA high school racer as well. And uh, Haley Batten, also probably two of the best. And uh, the, women, the women have fared better than the men for sure over the years, but, uh, but now we have both men and women who are competitive. It's pretty exciting. Yeah. Well, what did you enjoy most about racing at that world cup level? Well, it was hard to win in Europe. So it, it was, I mean, I won the world championships in 1990 mm -hmm. and that, that was a big deal. You know, I'd won several world championships, actually three before that, but they were not UCI recognized world championships. Mm -hmm. Before 1990, starting in 87, we would have two world championships, one in, one in Europe and then one in Mammoth. Hmm. They would call themselves the world's. And they, they were very competitive races. They tended yeah. to be the most competitive races. But, but it was a little wonky, right, because you had two world championships. Mm -hmm. And uh, 1990 was important for me to actually win a, what people were calling a real world championships. Mm -hmm. So that was... An important race, right? You have, you know, world championship stripes on your sleeve for the, yeah. the rest of your career and stuff like that. And people recognize that term, world champion. But really, those World Cups I won in 1994, one in Italy and, and one in Switzerland, it was more competitive then. You know, because in the early 90s, mountain biking blew up. You'd have, you would actually have to have a qualifier to get the field down to like 100 guys. A couple hundred racers would show up to try and race yeah. the elite world cup and, the, and a couple of days before they would have qualifiers to pair the field down. Mm -hmm. So super competitive. So when, you know, the, the most satisfying thing about winning a race is who your competition is. The more competitive it is, you know, uh, the more guys you're beating, I think the more satisfying it is. So, so those races to having one in Europe, right. It's a little tougher. You go over there, you have to adapt to the, the travel and the, and the different, food and stuff like that. So uh, those races were were big and, and it was a long time until somebody won one after that. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Well, it also, it sounds like we need to have more World Cup 
races here in the U.S. Yes, absolutely. That, that's a good point. Um, so Snowshoe and Mount St. Anne were the uh, two that uh, we have in North America now, but mm-hmm. we need them on a on more variety of terrain. We should have one in the West, and uh, yeah. hopefully that, that will be coming. Yeah, definitely. So tell us a little bit about the test track in Durango. That's an area that's now known as Oberyn Mountain Park. Did you help build the original trails that were there? And, and what were you testing on the test track? Uh, that, that's, a, that's a good question. The, first of all, they call it Oberyn Mountain Park because I owned 60 acres that are over on that side of park that are part of what they call test tracks, right? Mm-hmm. I, I still have our time calling it over on Mountain Park. <laughs> Well, yeah, it sounds, must be weird having a park named after you, is. but you're you're still around. It's strange, yeah. I think my son gets a kick out of that. So I w- I was running on those trails. They, there's it's a, a shale. Uh, it's kind of a gray shale dirt, which mm-hmm. is very easy to make a trail in. You know, if you if you ride down the hillside, you know it leaves a track, and you you've already started a new trail, but mm-hmm. it's it's pretty smooth. So there's a ton of flow in those trails. Yeah. It's, a, it's less rocky than any other part of town because it's a different kind of dirt. But I own 60 acres over there because uh, it was sold to me by a, a friend of mine. And I was saying, okay, well, I will, uh, you know, maybe I'll build a house on it. And because it was raw dirt right on the edge of town, I soon found out that developing like one house on this, the city wasn't going to let me do it without oil. You have to put like, sidewalks you have to have a street with a turnaround and so quickly turned out i was not a developer but i I had the opportunity to sell it to the city for basically what i paid for it Mm -hmm. and and require that it be preserved as an open space Mm -hmm. and it was added to by other acreage that were owned by other people that sold it to the city and Mm -hmm. and they preserved the whole thing but the fact that a big part of it was property that i had owned at one time so that's when, you know, somebody proposed that we change the name to Overend Mountain Park. Yeah. But all kinds of stuff was tested there back in the day, right? Because, you know, I, I was running there before I was even into cycling. So some of the earliest stuff, probably like the RS1 RockShock Fork, which oh, wow. uh, came out in 1990 was the first time I had uh, I'd ridden it. I rode it in the world championships. I mean, it had like, you know, maybe 65 mil of travel, but it was a hydraulic fork. So with an, with an air chamber as well. So an air mm-hmm. and hydraulic fork. And there was some other bumper forks out there. I think Minitou and Scott might have had a bumper fork at that time. But this mm-hmm. was the first hydraulic. So it was pretty interesting testing that fork in there. I mean, the early clipless pedals, when Shimano first made the SPD pedal, that was an interesting pedal to uh to test and a huge and a big step forward in you know performance of the mountain bike the road racers were all using uh clip-in pedals like the i think the time was one of the first road pedals but uh shimano made the first really good clip-in pedal Hmm. for mountain biking is that specifically was it one of the first for mountain biking that was a clipless pedal yes okay 
Yeah, I, that's that's the first one I remember. Other people made some, but none of them were could compare at all with with the you know the spring loaded design that that Shimano had made with that SPD. There was other ones. There was an Anza, and some tour had one, but they had uh, the spring was a rubber grommet kind of mm, thing, right? Yeah. So when you when you clipped out, you had to like uh, squeeze the rubber. That was that was the spring you were clipping out against, releasing mm -hmm. against, and uh, those were really inconsistent because the, the change in temperature changed the spring tension. So, but the Shimano used a steel spring, and it had it had some issues with uh, with mud clearance, especially in the early days. It, it would jam, and you wouldn't get out at all when those things got muddy. But, uh, but that, I mean, the uh, the brakes, especially, you know, I remember when we first would get disc brakes because there's some super steep uh, downhill sections in, in over in Mountain Park. So great, great for brake testing. Yeah, I was going to say, I've, I've ridden there um, in the park and there are some very steep trails. And yeah, I'm curious. I mean, are some of those the original trails that you were using too? I mean, was it basically you turned it over and, and those ended up being adopted as... Yeah, absolutely. The learning trails they had there, and those trails were actually a lot of more created by motorcycles. Oh, okay. People would ride at dirt bikes over there, and then you know it was it was right next to town, and dirt bikes were just tearing it up because it's pretty <laughs> fragile, a pretty fragile kind of dirt. Yeah. So uh, finally, they kicked motorcycles out of there, and but the the trails were pretty much created by motorcycles, I think, and they were kind of tend to be a bunch of trails that are right on the top of the ridges. Yeah, yeah. But then since then, uh, Durango Trails have, have built some amazing trails through there and closed a bunch off, right, because there was just too many. Mm -hmm. And we had to actually do a real outreach to the mountain bikers to try and get them to stop, you know, just creating outlaw trails. Yeah. Uh, which is, you know, work for the most part. That's ongoing. <laughs> right, right. Well, yeah. Are you one of the ones that's still riding the old trails saying, no, that was my favorite one you guys closed? <laughs> there is, it's interesting. I mean, the politics of, you know, we had trails in other sections that of, uh, of town that riders have made and they're great trails, but they're mm -hmm. outlaw trails. And okay. the city has actually said, even, even if it's a sustainable trail, They'll, they'll mm -hmm. say, we're not going to encourage this. We're closing this trail down. You know, we're yeah. going to go out there and cover it up and put barriers up. And we're not giving you these trails because we are not, you know, we do not want to encourage this people building out lot of trails. Right. You know, which, yeah. which is true. I mean, it's unfortunate to lose. And there were some good trails we lost to that kind of stuff. But you mm -hmm. have to go through the yeah. right process or it doesn't work. So. Right. It's tricky for sure because yeah, like you said, a lot of a lot of trails were originally created that way and they were later made official, but yeah, if if we keep doing that, we're going to run out of places to ride. So, uh I've re also read that you appeared in one of the first mountain bike videos ever back in 1988. And obviously today's videos are a lot different, a lot higher production value. And, you know, we have drones, we have YouTube, we have all these things. I'm curious, what are your thoughts on 
the idea of mountain bike films. Do you think any of them truly capture what mountain biking is about? I, I like that uh, acronym that you shared, never forget the feeling. And it's to me, it's almost like, yeah, can you capture that feeling in a mountain bike video? I, I don't think you can completely capture it. Uh, it's interesting. I, I find myself, even before the days of of GoPro and drones, right? I would picture myself mm -hmm. riding down a trail and having somebody else be looking through your eyes, right? Like maybe your wife. So people yeah, who don't yeah. have the physical ability, you know, like my sister. Did. Yeah, my mom. I, that's, I always think yeah. of my mom. Yeah. I'm like, oh, she doesn't get it. She doesn't understand because she's never done it. How could I show her? Yeah. yeah, and you know, the kind of terrain that mountain bikes can, can ride through is, Incredible, and the kind of scenery you see, and you know the the extreme angles for you know both up and down. So, but it's mm -hmm. really the feeling, the the combined feeling of the physical effort, right, with the exhilaration, you know, of of the speed and the and the technique. And I think mm -hmm. some films come pretty close to giving you that feeling yeah. but you can never experience the whole thing, not without the, the physical exhilaration, right. Of, you know, mm, yeah. the work you're doing and the, the feeling of movement and everything. But there are some amazing films. My son is, is into filming and we've done, we've done some filming together and, you know, the combination of having a GoPro on the back of a bike, filming a person and that person, mm -hmm. you know, having a GoPro on his front wheel and the combination of having a drone. My son flies drones too. You can get some incredible, a, a really incredible feel for, for riding. It's, it's impressive what they've done. Um, you know, and not to mention that all the crazy extreme videos, right? Like, <laughs> like Red Bull Rampage and things like that. So you mentioned uh, some of the early brakes and shocks and, and uh, pedals that you were able to test. What do you think has been the biggest innovation in mountain bike equipment over the years? That is a difficult question because it's hard to pick one without the benefit of the other. Like full suspension. I, I started out as a, motor, mm. as a motocross racer, you know, raced in high school, motocross and mm -hmm. hair scrambles. So I really appreciated full suspension and uh, I was embraced full suspension early for cross country, right? Cross country was my sport. So I wanted to use full suspension in cross country. I used the FSRXC when I won the, hmm. the Xterra Worlds in 98 and 99. But Specialized was always trying to get the World Cup team to use full suspension. and but we wouldn't force them to, right? Mm -hmm. We wanted them to use full suspension because everybody basically <laughs> at that time in the 90s were selling aluminum hardtails, right? And we're all hanging, you know, all the manufacturers were using mm -hmm. Rock Shocks mm -hmm. or Fox and we are uh, hanging Shimano or SRAM components on them, right? So it's hard to differentiate ourselves. So Specialized really wanted, you know, mm -hmm. we had four bar linkage and, and we're working with Horst, uh, you know, on different suspension systems, but getting the cross country world cup guys, it wasn't efficient enough for them, you know? So 
eventually we made the, in 2001, we had the first um, specialized Epic. And that is a, a bike that has an inertia valve built into the shock. So when you hit a bump, uh, the shock opens. Mm -hmm. And when you're riding on smooth ground, the shock closes again. So it, it's kind of a hardtail when it's smooth and more active when, mm -hmm. uh, when it's rough. And that was really a, yeah. an important bike. That was the first bike that won the uh, world championships as full suspension. Christoph Sauser uh, was the guy who was riding it at the time. I had already moved on to Xterra. But so I think full suspension has done a lot to make cycling more enjoyable, you know, in, increase the ability of what riders can do. And I live in Durango where, where it's rough. So in order to enjoy cycling, it's, it's really nice to have a full suspension bike. I mean, you know, in places like Michigan and other places like that, just having a high volume tire can be enough, but full suspension wouldn't be that much fun without this bike. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. You're, you're right. How it all is connected. And once we had one thing, then that led to another development and yeah, it is hard to, to pinpoint one thing, although the suspension, I mean, the way you describe it, it almost sounds like magic, right? I mean, where you can have a bike that, that rides like two different bikes without any input from the rider really. And so, yeah, yeah. So many great things about bike innovation. So my final question for you is about trails. You have a favorite trail in Durango? What ends up being my favorite trail is kind of what, what mood I'm in, right? Cause sometimes you're not in the mood to ride a rough trail, right? You don't have the energy. You don't, you don't, you don't have the flow, <laughs> you know, like you're not relaxed or, yeah. or something like that. So different days, it's kind of different trails, but there mm -hmm. is a trail in test tracks or over in mountain park called the spirit trail. And I really never get tired of it. It's, it winds its way. Mm -hmm. It's up against the edge of the cemetery in Durango on the west side of town. So, so it uh, winds itself kind of around. You can see gravestones mm -hmm. from it and, you know, the grass fields of the cemetery from different spots of the Spirit Trail. But it, it's up and down. It's not really long climbs, cool. but you go up just enough mm -hmm. that you can really accelerate, you know, through different turns coming up. It's got a ton of flow to it. And uh, I was, it's only, it's probably a 15 minute trail section. In, part of that park, but it's my favorite. I never, it, it always puts a smile on my face mm -hmm. for sure. You know, not that hard, but you can't, you, it's easy to keep momentum on it. Great answer. Well, Ned, thank you so much for taking the time to chat. It was a real honor talking with you and uh, yeah, thanks. Thanks for all that you've done for cycling. Yeah. It's been my pleasure. I've been the benefactor of, of, you know, the development of mountain bikes and trails and everything. So so I feel, uh, I feel very lucky, but it's been good talking to you. Absolutely. Well, uh, if you want to get more information about Spoketober, uh, we'll have the link for that in the show notes. That's all we've got this week. We'll talk to you again next week.